And this is how you cross over from Israel to Gaza. And right now we're in no man's land. Prime Minister, do you now regret when once asked what your favourite joke was, you replied Nick Clegg? And Deputy Prime Minister, what do you think of that? Mr Trump, why should you be president? What makes you fit for the role? Is it just one big ego trip? Thank you very much. People aren't sure they can trust what you say. You say what, things and then it turns out that they're not quite what you said. My name's Andy Bell and I've been a journalist for over 30 years. In this podcast, How Did We Get Here?, I aim to provide background and context to a big story in the news. And once again this week, we are looking at coronavirus. How bad could it be? When will it be over? And has the government taken the right steps at the right time? I've been talking to Aaron Shonak, an epidemiologist who took his degree at Cambridge University and now blogs on the site Bites of Science. He spoke to me from Nottingham, where he recently moved in with his sister and brother-in-law, who are both hospital doctors. Now, first of all, you're in Nottingham, which is not where you normally live, so explain to us why you're there. Yeah, hi. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah, so I, my sister lives up in Nottingham, um, so my sister and my brother-in-law both work in uh, local big teaching hospitals in Nottingham. Um, and so about a week ago, I kind of saw, saw this thing coming saw the lockdown on the horizon, and then my sister rang me and told me that she'd come down with uh, coronavirus symptoms. Um, so I think most people then would probably run a mile, but I, I actually did the opposite and jumped in the car and drove straight up here uh, and moved in. Um, and the plan was sort of to try and get myself in the house while they still had it and then lock myself down so that I knew I wasn't giving it to anyone else. OK, so you wanted to go and catch it. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I figured, um, you know, the way the way things are looking, um, the UK government's expecting most people in the UK to get this thing at some point in the next you know, year. So I figured, well, I might as well try and get it out of the way as early as possible, um, but crucially to do it in a very controlled way. So by moving in here and, you know, acting as if I'd caught it from the first day I moved in. So I've been on lockdown for 10 days now. Um, I can then be sure that I'm not going to spread it to anyone else. And that's kind of, I thought, felt that was really important to me. So I've, uh, that's the route I took. Okay, so you didn't want to spread it in case you already had it and, and didn't realise it. But also, was there thinking that, how can I put this, you could be ahead of the, the curve if you develop more serious symptoms? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a case there that, um, you know, hospitals aren't full at the moment, which is fantastic. And hopefully they won't be full. Um, but we might be looking at a situation where getting hospital bed is really difficult. Um, so for someone like me, you know, I'm young and fit. The odds are, even if I turned up to hospital in the middle of this crisis, I would, they'd probably still find me a bed. Um, but in the middle of the crisis, they might find me a bed by taking it off someone else. Whereas at the moment, there's one there ready and waiting for me. And so um, I kind of felt like if, if I could do it in a very controlled way, then now might be a better time than later. Okay. And do you know if you've had it? I'm not sure. Um, I've been a bit tired this week, but, you know, I've also not left the house for a week. So it's really hard to tell, I think, without without a test. Um, you know, I've got the same. A lot of my friends I've spoken to have said, you know, oh, I've had a bit of a fever. Maybe I'm not sure. Maybe I've had it. Maybe I haven't. Um, so there's a lot of speculation going on. So And of course, you, you, you haven't got you haven't. Sorry to interrupt, but we haven't got a, a test to, to, at the moment that's, that's easily accessible for someone like you or, or for your sister or brother in law. Do you know if they um, had it? Uh, no, so so the test we've got at the moment can only test whether you have it at the moment. Um, so we haven't got the one that tests for your immunity up and running yet. Um, and the one that tests whether you've currently got it can only be done in a lab. Um, so it wouldn't be available to someone like me. 
Um, it might be available to my sister and my brother-in-law soon, but obviously if they've had it and recovered, they're not then going to test positive on that. Okay, well, just while we're talking about that, uh, that that's useful because there's a lot of confusion about the testing. So which is the one that tells you that you've got it now? What do they call okay. it? Uh, so that's a, it's a, the one you've got it now is a PCR test, um, which, which effectively what they do is they take um, a sample from you and they look to see whether the virus is in that sample. Um, and they do that. They do that in a lab. You can do it in most kind of biological biological labs around the country. So there's a lot of kit out there. Um, I think the big one is in Sheffield, I believe, um, for for, the, for around here anyway. Um, so so that can own. But if you've recovered, you obviously aren't. You don't have the virus anymore really in you. So it can't then find it. So a person who has never had it and a person who has recovered from it would both test negative for that test. And is that the one that everyone is very keen that the NHS frontline staff get? Yes, at the moment. So the plan, the point is that at the moment, anyone in the NHS who gets ill has to stay at home. Um, whereas if you can test those people, um, you can test them and say, actually, you haven't got coronavirus, you've just got a cold, you can come back to work. And that gets those people back into work quicker. And then there's the test which says whether you've had it in the past. Just explain that one for us. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got um, that test is an antibody test. Um, so it tests whether you're immune to the virus because you've developed um, antibodies to it, which are our body's way of fighting off something you've seen before. Um, and that will be that if we can get that out, that will be a game changer because it means anyone who's got antibodies to the virus in theory shouldn't be able to catch it and shouldn't be able to then pass it on to other people. So those people can kind of go about their lives as normal, really, um, because they're not a risk anymore. And that the idea would be that, you know, that would look something very similar probably to a pregnancy test. Um, so a pregnancy test is, is an antibody test as well. OK, so that would be very useful to be able to say kind of what the state of the nation is in terms of who's had it and who hasn't and how far it's got. Um, but, exactly. we, but we're not there yet. You might have seen um, there was a paper that came out of Oxford, which sort of said that maybe 50 percent of us have had it already. And that kind of got a lot of attention. Um, and I think it's really hard to know at the moment whether have hardly any of us had it or have loads of us had it and not really got ill. And it's really difficult to answer that question. Now, if we had this antibody test, we could test the whole country and say, right, we know exactly how many people have had it in the last month and we know how many people have died of it, which means we have a much better idea of whether it's going to be really, really bad or actually not too bad at all. Okay. And the government, I think, is saying right now that they are, they've ordered millions of these things and think that they're going to get them quite soon. Yeah. Are, are you, do you have confidence in that? By how quickly they've um, gone about that. It seems like, you know, they're saying that they might be in stock in Amazon and Boots by, you know, in a couple of weeks maybe, which is, which is crazy. But, I mean, it'd be fantastic if they can do that. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you on that. But okay. So that's your your situation. Summing it up, you're not sure whether you've had it. You're not sure whether your sister and brother-in-law had it either. So anyway, let's hope everyone is is well. Um, let's get on to looking at this, the big picture. Um, where are we? What is our best guess about where we are in the kind of curve, surge, whatever peak, whatever you want to call it, of this uh, virus? So so it's. W- it's very difficult to know, but the odds are we're still quite early. Um, so we, we've done a, you know, we were maybe slightly late to the game compared to somewhere like China or South Korea. Um, but we were probably earlier to the game than something like Italy. Um, so in the UK, at least, we're, we're now, we're going to see um, for at least the next few days, deaths are going to keep rising and cases are going to keep rising. 
um, because the effect of the lockdown will take about a week to come in at least. So as of maybe t today or the middle of this week, we should start seeing um, the lockdown effect, which means fewer cases being reported and fewer deaths coming in. Um, so hopefully that will start happening. Um, when you say we were earlier to the game or later to the game, do you mean in terms of the disease arriving or in terms of our reaction to it? So, so in terms of how many people in the country had it before we started doing things. Um, so because this virus spreads by exponential growth, which means, you know, you go from two to four, but then you go from four to eight and eight to 16 and 16 to 32. Um, the numbers get bigger every single time because there's more people out there spreading it. So, you know, if you if you if you go into lockdown when 100 people have the virus, you'll see very, very few cases. But if you wait another two weeks, you might have thousands of people with the virus. Um, and so so doing those making those putting those measures into place early has a massive, massive impact. So do you think Britain actually was reasonably timed in bringing in the, the well, let's call it the lockdown for want of a better phrase, because a number of people thought we could have been earlier. So I think it's it's tricky. I think for me, um, the the day of the first press briefing, which was kind of that Monday, um, was a week before we then went into lockdown the following Monday. And for me, I was kind of thinking by that first Monday, I was thinking we should we should really be going into lockdown now because um, we know we you know we've we've paid attention to this thing, and it could be really bad. And I think the problem during that week was. Um, I think the government knew it could be bad, but there wasn't that much evidence that it was going to be really bad. And, you know, going into lockdown isn't a, it's not a, it's not a small step to take. Um, and over the course of that week, I think they got more and more convinced that this could be a really, really bad epidemic and a lot of people could die. And that's why they took that measure. So it depends. I'm a pessimist. So I would have gone into lockdown earlier on the basis that I would assume it was going to be terrible. If you're an optimist, then when we went into lockdown, probably makes sense. OK, so maybe we lost a week, in your opinion, that we, we could have been a bit tougher um, on the, on, in terms of restrictions on people movement. So now we are where we are. When do you think we're going to see the peak of this? Well, what's, what's really interesting is, um, so the, the peak for the UK now should, if the lockdown's working and touch what it is, um, the peak should be, you know, in the first week of April. First, second week of April, we should see num numbers of deaths starting to come down. And that's because the lot if we see that, it's because the lockdown is working. Um, now, what's really interesting is that, you know, there are a few countries around the world now which have decided not to put in strict measures for the coronavirus. So Belarus is one and Sweden is another one. Um, and they're kind of going about life as normal. And that's going to be really interesting because that shows all the other countries around the world, we can only see what's happening when these tough measures are coming into play which means we're seeing an artificial peak where we're controlling it and bringing cases back down. Um, whereas in Sweden and Belarus, we're not going to see that. We're just going to see what would growth look like if you did nothing. And that's going to be really interesting because that could be loads and loads and loads of people dead. And that could be a big gamble. Or we might find out that actually the peak isn't that high and most people are going to be fine. And then the rest of the world can start relaxing their measures a little bit. But by the time you get to that, uh, result when you can see what's happened in somewhere like Sweden or Belarus. If it turns out to be bad, it's too late if you haven't taken those measures and you've just stored up a whole lot of trouble. I mean, that's the that's the problem, isn't it? That's exactly it. So it's a big gamble. And up until now, no one's wanted to be the first country to take that gamble, which in my view is exactly the right approach. You've got to, 
you know, you've got to err on the side of caution. Um, so Sweden and Belarus, maybe they, uh, maybe they know something we don't. Um, but the Belarusian president has said that the way to beat this thing is uh, vodka, 50 mils of vodka a day, a sauna, and not not skipping breakfast. So I'll uh, I'll make my own judgments on right, that. Right. Yeah. I've no idea what his sort of uh, medical uh, qualifications are, but uh, moving moving swiftly on. Um, so if we see a peak say at the beginning of April, does that mean after that point we can start to relax the restrictive measures? Not necessarily. So if we see a peak at the beginning of April, like I said, it will be kind of a false peak in the sense of um, deaths and cases will start coming down, but because lockdown is stopping us mixing around and passing it on to each other. So it's not going to be a case of once cases come down, we can all go back to our normal lives. Um, hopefully, we'll, we, we will start to be able to restrict, um, relax lockdown a little bit, but it is going to be quite a controlled process and it probably will happen over months, not weeks. I mean, is it going to be a situation where you kind of partially relax and then you have to put the lid on again? Exactly. So, so I think what some of the modelling predicts is that we could uh, kind of you know, relax lockdown for maybe a certain group of people or for people in a certain geographical area or just for a couple of days. And then say, let's say, you know, lockdown doesn't apply on the weekends or something. And then that means you'll get the you'll get cases rising and then you'll control them again and bring them back down. And what's the reason that's important is it gives hospitals a chance to kind of treat patients to empty out their beds and make space for new people coming in. So you sort of manage the demands coming through the hospital doors in a sort of series of, of mini peaks. Exactly. It's, it's pretty much a supply and demand kind of curve. And the way you, you're controlling the supply of infected patients, basically, by controlling how much people get to interact with each other socially. OK. Um, is everyone's modelling the same on this? Well, so the challenge with modeling, um, everyone's trying to learn modeling 101 at the moment. And the challenge with modeling is that a computer can only tell you what you tell it. So the problem with that Oxford paper was that they effectively told the computer, assume that this virus isn't that bad. And then they ran some maths and then the computer came back and said, oh, I don't think it's going to be that bad. Um, which is kind of the goal, the cardinal sin of modeling. So what you have to do, you know, the, the, the predictions your model can make are only as good as the data you can put in. And the problem we've got here is that our, the data across the world is in, incredibly inconsistent. So in Italy, everyone who dies in a hospital pretty much is being collapsed as a coronavirus death. So their death rate is really, really, really high. Whereas in America, it's very different. People who, even people who have coronavirus, but then die of a heart attack instead of pneumonia, they may not be classed as a coronavirus death. So that's very different. And then the amount of testing that countries are doing is very different. So are you testing people in the community or not? Are you testing people only in hospital, in which case more of them are likely to die because you've already selected the people who are quite ill? Um, so, so comparing data even between countries is incredibly difficult. Well, that's interesting because you see a lot of the kind of comparison of the graphs with, you know, infections and deaths in Italy or in Spain or in China and the UK. Uh, it sounds as if, I mean, and a lot of people, for instance, are saying, how come Germany seems to be doing quite well in this? And is there, is part of the explanation that the, the data is not being recorded in the same way and is not really comparable? Probably, yes. So, so you know, one way you could bring down your death rate a lot is by testing everyone in the community because we think that a lot of people get this virus quite mildly, which means that, you know, if you, if you test 100 people in hospital 
and they all have it and a, a lot of them die, then your death rate's going to be, you know, maybe 5%, maybe more. But if you test 100 people in the hospital and 1,000 people in the community, and most of the people in the community, you know, let's say half of them have it, that's going to bring your numbers down massively for how many people are dying. Um, so so it, it's difficult as well because, you know, we don't have good, we don't even know how each country is choosing to test or choosing to record deaths, let alone how they might compare to each other. So it's a really difficult question right now. Okay, I just want to go back to the idea that was obviously very controversial a couple of weeks ago, but it's never really gone away, is this herd immunity idea. Um, it's obviously, it's, you know, the label has, has gone down badly with a lot of people, the, the way that's described. But is it the case that in the end, short of a vaccine, the way this we overcome this is that a lot of the population end up having the virus? Yeah, I mean, probably. So, so herd immunity is a very interesting phrase because actually even herd immunity is the only way really to stop a virus. So that the only way is to either get rid of the virus, which is difficult for something like this, or everyone to be immune to it. And even vaccines work by herd immunity. Um, so one of the reasons we've seen cases of measles rising in recent years is because the anti-vaccine movement has meant some people haven't had the vaccine. Enough of those people get it gets to a point where enough of those people exist that we lose a bit of our herd immunity and then measles start spreading again. So so herd immunity isn't um, necessarily a, a bad term on its own. I think the way the government used it was they sort of in, they attached it to we're just going to let a lot of people die and then we'll all be immune. Um, so but but yeah, so ultimately, unless we have a vaccine and in reality, a vaccine will a vaccine that reaches us in our houses is probably a year away. Um, maybe slightly less, but even the most optimistic people say eight months. So we're going to have to wait for one of them. Um, then the only other way out is for all of us to get it and um, and recover from it and, and get to what's called herd immunity. Yeah. And there's that then we get back to this idea again of a lot of people getting it, but in a managed way of a sort of series of mini peaks so that the hospitals are never overwhelmed. Exactly, exactly that. And, you know, if, if we can work out that young people who are otherwise healthy have a very low risk of getting it badly, then you might be able to say, OK, well, we're going to let we're going to let, you know, a thousand young people at a time get it because most of them will be fine. And then when you get to the older people, you say, OK, we're only going to let 100 older people at once get it because it's much more likely that they'll go into hospital. So it's, it's having control of it. And I think the reason the lockdown is so important is that and until you've got infections down to a manageable level, you can't get control of it and make any of those decisions. You're just playing catch up. So so the way I see it is, is going into lockdown is kind of step minus one. And getting a handle on it. So the first week of second week of April, we're going to be in step zero. So, OK, we, we've had a few cases. We've got it back under control. Now, what do we do? Um, and so I think I would encourage people to think about, um, you know, case deaths coming down in April is kind of the beginning of fighting this virus, not the end. OK, I mean, just to go to jump back a little bit, there was a lot of talk about government changing direction when they were presented with modelling which basically said we're heading for a quarter of a million deaths. Um, from, what you kn from what you can tell, does, does that sound right? Uh, and that, that would have, was what they were presented with and therefore uh, anyone faced with that would have said, I think that's unacceptable. What, what do you know about that? What, what, what are you concluding from that? I, th I, think, I think, yeah, so, so the problem with these models is that 
if the numbers change slightly, the outcome can change massively. So, you know, they, they, I think they were looking at data from China, which was saying, okay, if we put these numbers in, we get a reasonable number of deaths, you know, maybe twice as bad as your average flu season or something. So about 20,000 deaths. And that's okay. And actually, they're mostly going to be older people who are otherwise ill, who might have died anyway. Maybe that's, you know, it's not good, but maybe that's fine. And then then they looked at data coming out of Italy and they plugged those numbers in instead and said, okay, actually, our death rate could be 10 times as high as we thought it was. And actually, in Italy, there is lots of old people dying, but there are also young people dying and young people in hospital. And so I think that it was their change in from looking at China to looking at Italy where they thought, okay, this is actually very different. We need to start um, taking this much more seriously. Okay. So now where we are what is your best guess about what then you know how long we're going to have to have these measures in place for and you know how bad this could be so i mean like i said i'm a pessimist trying to be optimistic so um it kind of it all i think the really interesting thing will be as two things one to watch where sweden and belarus go and whether they hold their nerve and don't do anything because that will tell us a lot um, the other thing is if we get this antibody test, um, then that will tell us a lot about where we are. Um, but with, without either of those things, we're either looking at at least a few months um, while we get those tests in place and we do that testing and we work out where we are. Um, and then we might be able to start relaxing things quite quickly if we find out a lot of people have already had it. Um, so that's if we if we get lucky and it's not that bad. When you say a few months, do you mean say through the summer? So I mean, if we're lucky, you know, it, we could be by June, by May, June, we we could be coming out of lockdown in a really significant way. Um, if we're lucky, um, if we're unlucky, we could be looking at all the way through the summer to kind of September or or potentially longer um, if it's really bad. I think my my if I had to put money on a month. I would say probably, probably August, maybe September, would to to see really meaningful changes. Um, I think something that might be difficult is if this thing is quite bad, which it could be, then we might, you know, coming out of lockdown, we're not going to have something like victory in Europe Day um, in this war. So there's not going to be this day where you say, okay, coronavirus is gone, we're all we're all sorted. It's going to be a slow coming out of lockdown, testing the waters, testing that we're not going to have another peak and another explosion of this virus. And I think that might be quite hard for people because, you know, it's kind of, it, it's going to linger. It's not going to be this big bang finish. And they might have to reimpose controls as well. Yeah. And I, I think, I think, we'll, I think we're all going to struggle there when they say, okay, cool. You, you can go to the pub again and you go to the pub. And then five days later, they say, actually, no, we're back in lockdown. You can't go to the pub. And I think that toing and froing is going to be a real challenge. Aaron, thank you very much. Really appreciate you talking to us. Very no helpful. No Thank you for having me on. The epidemiologist Aaron Shonak, who blogs at the site Bites of Science. If you have thoughts about this or ideas for other podcasts, please email me on andy.bell at itn.co.uk. And I'm tweeting at, at andybell5news. Thanks for listening to this edition of How Did We Get Here? I know that's two in a row now about coronavirus, but it's pretty hard to think about anything else right now. I hope you're finding these podcasts useful, and there'll be another one along soon. In the meantime, stay safe.